Oh, what joy and hope and comfort there is in that when we bow our hearts and our heads, we can call to you an almighty Father, an eternal, true, and absolute sovereign creator of all that is, including us and everything we can imagine you've created You deserve all praise, Lord. You deserve all adoration and worship. You are our God and our Lord who has delivered us from sin and slavery. Lord, thank you. Thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. Give us, I pray, your word as we, uh, giving to us this morning your word to read and to sing and to preach and to meditate upon. Lord, May we receive your word this morning as it is proclaimed. May we receive it with the authority and dominion that it requires. We come this morning, Lord, not standing over your word, but we pray our hearts will be submissive and ready to hear and understand and obey your word this morning. May it water our souls. May it fill us that we may be satisfied. Help us, Father, I pray, that we might do this receiving of your word with joy and anticipation. Grant us hearts that are motivated, not by duty, but by love, filled with your spirit, that we may know your will for us and reflect your glory to our family members, to our coworkers, to our community, to the nations. We ask, Father, these things, these amazing things, in the authority of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is indeed our Deliverer and our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, we have arrived at Exodus chapter 20, and we're in the midst of a, um, in the middle of the book of Exodus, and we have gotten here to a passage uh, in Exodus chapter 20. That's both probably the most well-known of Bible passages by your uh, people that surround you, and also probably the least understood. And so we have a tension here between these two things. Let me explain. First, um, there are few people in our daily lives who would be altogether unaware of what you are referring to when you say the Ten Commandments. <laughs> when you mention that phrase they are at very least aware that the Ten Commandments, um, also called the Decalogue, which probably isn't more as familiar of a, of a title, but it's also referred to as the Decalogue, they would be aware of the fact that the Ten Commandments are rules or prohibitions that are given by God and they're in the Christian Scriptures. However, beyond that, we find that there's very little really known or understood about Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. I will say that one of the most challenging things for me right now as we get into Exodus 20 is that I have a lot of books in my library. And as I begin pulling books off of my shelf that reference Exodus chapter 20, um, over I would say probably over half of my books that I have have either a handful of pages or entire chapters dedicated to Exodus chapter 20. And so there has been... A bunch of stuff written on chapter 20 of Exodus, of the Ten Commandments, how we're to handle it, how we're to understand it. 
That's also to help us, under, help us see that um, this chapter is not one that, even though it may be familiar to some of us that have grown up maybe in Sunday school or church, it is not as familiar. It may be more difficult for us to actually grasp and to understand. Even Jesus himself came back to the Ten Commandments and had to correct the Pharisees who were the religious leaders and said, you're not getting them right. You're, you're misinterpreting them, misunderstanding the intent of these Ten Commandments. So, as we talk to people about them, um, and even as we think about them ourselves this morning, how many of us in this room, and these are most of you are here almost every Sunday, can list the Ten Commandments in order? You don't have to quote them from Scripture, but actually just go through and list what they are and how they list and how they work. Um, there was a day and age that even a person that was not regularly attending church would know what the Ten Commandments were. Um, and so the very fact that we have a difficult time, many of us, listing what those are. Where it's found in the Bible, and the fact that it's not found only in Exodus chapter 20, it's also found elsewhere. We're going to look at that later on. Um, there's many who do not realize that it's, um, that it's found in Exodus 20, but also there's so many that do not understand that it's also found in other places in our Bible. And then finally, understanding the, understanding the, the actual meaning of these Ten Commandments and their influence in the rest of our Bibles. Now, we're going to be touching on a lot of those things over the next several weeks. We're going to be working one sermon at a time through the Ten Commandments as we do that. This morning, we're going to be looking only at verses 1 and 2 to get an overall, an an overview of everything. And then we're going to be launching into the Ten Commandments one by one as we work through them. But my prayer is that we will fight the tendency that we think, well, we've heard these and we understand these, and so therefore the familiarity will cause us to kind of zone out. My prayer is that as we go through these, that you'll ask that the Lord will help you see in his word how these commandments need to work out and flesh out in our own lives, how they are indeed a wonderful joy to us, and that we will not approach them with apathy or with casualness, but instead we will look at them and seek that the Lord will reveal to us what they're saying and come back to them with fresh eyes and conviction, with clarity, that we may see them again anew and afresh and that we may apply them to our own lives appropriately and rightly. And that's really the part that we're going to be looking at as we go through the Ten Commandments one by one. How do we apply those appropriately and rightly? We're going to be dealing with that um, because honestly I must confess that even as a young man who had a little bit of time in the church as a, as a, as a young man, um, I did not understand how Christ influences each of the Ten Commandments and how we're to understand the application of these um, you know, with care and with diligence. And so we're going to be looking at that together. But this morning we're going to be only looking at verses 1 and 2. And how in the world am I going to preach a whole sermon on verses 1 and 2? Well, you're getting ready to see how that works. So, verses 1 and 2, we're going to be noticing um, this morning and considering an overview of uh, the Ten Commandments and, and looking at this together. And I want us to notice uh, verses 1 and 2 in two points. Obviously, point number 1 is verse 1. And in that, in verse 1, we're going to be looking at the universal authority of God's law. The universal authority of God's law. Verse 1. Verse 2, point number 2, the unique privilege of God's law. So point number one, the universal authority of God's law. And then point number two, the unique privilege. The unique privilege of God's law. Of God's law. This word for law 
It's also the Hebrew word for law. It's Torah. And you may hear that. Again, I mentioned earlier the word decalogue is also a, uh, a word that entitles these Ten Commandments, these Ten Words. And uh, we refer to them in all of those different ways. So if I mention Torah, Decalogue, Ten Commandments, um, I'm understanding them in a very, very similar way. All right? Point number one, the universal authority of God's law. Let's, if you would, look with me in verse 1 of chapter 20, and we see that it is, um, it is beginning with an and, which means that we need to understand the context of what's taking place there. And God spoke all these words, saying, and then he speaks in verses 2 and following uh, these Ten Commandments. But what we have to see here is the context of what's taking place. Last week we noticed in chapter 19 that the Lord had come down and ascended upon this mountain. And it says in verse 16 that when he did this, the Lord did this on this morning, there were thunderings and lightnings. Look there in verse 16 of chapter 19. Verse 16 of chapter 19, thunders and lightnings and thick cloud and a mountain and a very loud trumpet blast to the point that not only did the people tremble at the end of verse 16, but also even the mountain itself trembled in the end of verse 18 there. This was a fearful event. This was no light occasion. The Lord had come down and he had called Moses up to speak to him, to Moses, and to tell Moses what he wanted the people to know. And what we find is at the end of verse 19, Moses then, it says, in verse 25, it says, So Moses went down from this mountain where he had been with God to the people, and he told them. In my Bible, you've got to flip the page to get over to verse 1 of chapter 20. And you see the context then that as Moses is telling these words that he received from the Lord on the mountain, and God spoke all these words, saying... Here's my point I want you to notice. These are God's words. These aren't Moses' interpretation of these words. The Bible, and specifically chapter 19, is very clear to help us see that Moses was doing nothing more than mediating or communicating. He was revealing and declaring God's very words that he had received from that mountain. So at the end of verse 19, Moses went down to the people and he told them. What did he tell them? He told them the words that he received from the mountain, which were God's words, and he wanted to make that very clear and underscore that. And in verse 1 it said, God spoke. That one that's on the mountain, that one that's so fearful, that one that we're standing at the foot of the mountain and trembling at, this God, he's the one who spoke all these words and he wants you to know them. He wants you to hear them. He wants you to adhere to them. Now, how did they respond? Moses speaks all these words, verses two through six, excuse me, two through seventeen of chapter twenty. And then notice in verse eighteen of chapter twenty, if you will, we're noticing the context of these Ten Commandments. And I want you to see that these that that the the point is that these words are indeed God's very words. And this is gonna I'm, I'm gonna make the point here in just a minute of why this is so important. Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. So this is the same event. They, it hasn't gone a couple of days. and then they, No, this is, this is the same event of what they saw back in chapter 19. Moses came down. He communicated to them these words and said, these are God's words. What did the people think the words were that Moses was giving to them? Notice what it says in verse 18. When they saw the 
thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Notice what it says in verse 19. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You see what's happening? They're saying, we will be willing to hear you speak to us God's words. But we are fearful that if God spoke directly to us these words, we would die in his presence. And so you go and be our mediator. The point here, brothers and sisters, this morning that I wanted you to see is that this passage Our passage, this transition from chapter 19 to chapter 20, and as these commandments are being given, these are God's words. These are words that God has spoken. Now you're thinking to yourself, Shane's making a big point out of this, and and we know that. However, we need to acknowledge that throughout history, people and our own hearts are given to to the very fact of seeing that these are God's words, but then dismissing them in various ways. Dismissing them and and setting them aside, not understanding them as being words from our very God and maker and creator. We're so easy. History has shown us over and over again where God's word has been set aside. Even this morning as we come and as we gather and as we read from scriptures and as we pray from scriptures and as we preach and spend a a good amount of time in the preaching of God's word, do you realize that there are vast number of churches in this town and around America and even around the world that have gathered for worship and the word of God is, is in the midst of them very little, if at all. And so we need to acknowledge that when God speaks, it is a very important thing. In other words, what I want you to understand is that when God speaks, it's a very important thing. In fact, in Genesis 1, when God spoke, what did he do? He caused all things to exist. He created everything. The Lord is not into just chattering or babbling. When he speaks, he's doing it with authority and with direction. He has an aim and a purpose for it. There is no extra words in our Bible that are just throwaway, not necessary. No When the Lord speaks, he creates all things. When the Lord, by his word, by his very word, he upholds. He he holds all things together. It says in Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe. How? By the word of his power. And so the Lord's words are very important. We need to understand that they, they possess the very authority of God himself. Did you hear that? Because this is really the point. When we say here in verse 1 that God spoke all these words, what we're saying is that these words have authority over us and we have no authority over them. These words are words that God has given to us and that we should not mess with or try to uh, set aside or try to interpret with our experiences. These are not suggestions. These are not great ways to live. These are not things we can discuss and try to work through and figure out which ones we should do and which ones we should not. No, these commandments, specifically these ten commandments, are words given to us by God. And there is something that we need to understand that reveal the very character of God. In other words, God's character is rooted to his word. God's very character and nature, this, I want you to get this, God's very character and nature are rooted in the Ten Commandments. They're, 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 who God is is being displayed as he's communicating these Ten Commandments. Look with me, if you will, 
and see these different characteristics of God as we work through the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. This speaks to the fact that God is holy. There is no God like him. He alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. That's why it says in our first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? God is holy. Number two, second commandment, you shall make, verses, verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. The point here is that God is invisible. He doesn't have a body or parts as we talked about last week. Any attempt to create or display him with images or pictures belittles who he is and diminishes his true worth and value. You shall make no carved images. God is invisible. Commandment number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This speaks of God's jealousy. God is jealous to protect and preserve the reverence and all that his name requires. God says, do not take my name in vain. God is a jealous God. Commandment number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God is an eternal God who is sovereign over every millisecond of time. And he's called us to rest in him on the Lord's day. And because of this, he's called us to rest and rest over his sovereignty over our days, our years, and our weeks, our time. The Lord is sovereign and eternal over all time. And that's why he says, remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. He is over it. He is an authority of it. Commandment number five, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. God is our authority. God is our authority. And he gives us the authority, such as our parents, to honor and respect as those who have been given that position by God himself. And so when we honor the authorities that God has placed in our lives, we're honoring the God who has placed those authorities in our lives. Honor your father and mother, commandment number five. Commandment number six, verse 13, you shall not murder. God is our creator. He has given us life, and he's the one who will take our life away from us. We, as his people, nor a government, nor a society, has the right to end life. (laughs) Because God's the giver of life. He's the creator of it. He's the one who's given it to us. You shall not murder. Commandment number six. Commandment number seven, verse 14. Commandment number seven, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. God is faithful. God is faithful, and he causes people to live lives of faithfulness toward him and toward one another, and specifically in that intimate relationship of marriage. Commandment number eight. You shall not steal, verse 15. You shall not steal. God is wise. God is wise. Did you know God is so wise that he's given you what you need? Nothing more and nothing less. And so when you steal, you're saying, what I need is something different than what God has given to me. God is a God who provides for us. And we are those who are to love him and glorify him in the provision that he has given to us. So we should not steal. God is wise. Commandment number 9, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness. God tells the truth. He is the truth. He never lies. He has called us to reflect his truth by when, in that when we speak, we speak only things that are true. And in so doing, what do we reflect? We reflect not just truth, 
but we reflect the very God of truth. And then finally, you shall not covet. God is good. And when we covet other things, other people's stuff, do you know what we're saying? God's not good to me. You see, God is God is good, and he gives us everything that we have and withholds whatever we do not have. And in all of this, he is our good. (laughs) In other words, not only has he provided us with things that are good, but when we don't have certain things, we can look to him and say, only he is our good. And so we shall not covet. So do you see, brothers and sisters, how in each one of these commandments, and we're going to go through these in a lot more detail, in each one of these commandments, it's not just telling us something not to do. It's, it's a glorious display of who God is, each of these commandments. And it is an opportunity that as we obey these commandments, we are displaying our God. We're, we're, we're revealing and, and, and showing our God to the world that's around us. Why? Because God's character is rooted in his word, in his commandments. They're not merely arbitrary words or helpful suggestions on how we can live better or make our days better. No, these are opportunities for us to display and reveal the very glory of God through the way we live. Now, I want to make a few implications from this truth, this idea that it says in verse 1, and God spoke all these words, and therefore he spoke all these words, so his character is rooted and fixed to these commandments. In so doing, we reflect and reveal God's character through these commandments because they carry the authority of God with them. What are the implications that should come from this? One of the first implications of this idea that God has spoken to us, and so therefore, how are we to live out these words? God has spoken to us, and his character is connected to these words, these commandments. Therefore, God's words are enduring forever. Always trustworthy and eternally fixed. Did you hear that? God's words are enduring forever, always trustworthy, and eternally true or sure and fixed. In other words, brothers and sisters, that when we come to 2017, and when we, Lord willing, get to 2040, and Lord willing, when we get even further down the road, if the Lord hasn't tarried and hasn't come, these truths are still going to be true. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You should not covet. You should not make, a, make any carved images. You should not have any other gods before you. All of these things will always be true. They do not waver. It's amazing to me as the culture is looking at us, at Christians today, and saying, you need to be on the right side of history. The right side of history is in God's word, obeying and living out his word, because these are the things that don't change. Those things change, and they'll change again in another three or four years, but God's word will never change. It says in Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. Where? In the heavens. Psalm 119.160, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules. What do they do? They endure forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Jesus himself says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, 
we need to understand that as these laws, these commandments are fixed to the very character of God, then God's got to violate his own character to dismiss them. First implication is these commandments are enduring forever. They're always trustworthy and eternally sure and fixed in the heavens. Number two implication is this, is that God's word is always very good and will always be the best and most satisfying way that we are to think and to live. God's words are very good. After he created all that he created, he created it with his word. He spoke all things to existence. And then when he got done, what did he say? This is very good. His word is still very good. And it's the best and most satisfying way for us to live. In Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 81 this morning that Mark read for us, it says, Hear, O people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. You hear that? That's, that's the first commandment that Psalm 81 is mentioning. And then it goes on and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Where is that? That's right there in our text where we're looking at this morning. And then Psalm 81, that verse, it ends this way. It says this, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The Lord says, if you want to be filled... If you want your soul to be satisfied, if you want every longing to be, to, be, to, be, to be washed with his word and satisfied, then come to his word. Live according to his word. Abide by his word, for it's enduring, but it also is satisfying and it's good. Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Is there anything else you can go to that's perfect? Nothing. But the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. Is that what you need this morning? Do you need, did you need this week for your soul to be revived? I did. Where do we go for our soul to be revived? We go to the law of the Lord. Why? Because it's perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. So right that it says in Psalm 19 that it rejoices the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your steward warned. In keeping them, there is, hear this, great reward. Is that how we, is that how we, Think of God's word, brothers and sisters. You see, this morning you entered into this room, I'm confident, not having the elevated view of God's word as we should. We're constantly diminishing it. You know what we diminish it for? We diminish God's word and its authority for our feelings and for our experiences and for our rationality. Well, if I do that, God says, it just doesn't make sense because this and this and this will be bad. God says, live out my word and trust me. You see, we're constantly measuring God's word by our own experiences, by our own emotions, by our own thinking and logic, and where, where, what we need to do. And, and know this, that's exactly what's happened throughout history. We can read history and see that that's exactly what's happened throughout history. Groups of people have denied God's word and the authority of it by experience, by rationale, by emotions, but God has told us that we can come to his perfect word, and in so doing, it will revive our souls. Brothers and sisters, 
let's elevate and understand that God's word, when he says he is speaking to us and he does through his word, he does through the preaching of his word, when he does this, this is the, this is the thing that's like bread to our souls. It feeds us and it waters us. So we find first implication. The first implication is that um, the word of God will endure forever. It is trustworthy and sure and fixed. Second, it will satisfy our souls. That's an implication of the fact that the word of God is connected to his character and to his very nature. And then finally and thirdly, I want to notice the third implication of this, this connection of God himself and his very character being rooted in his word and in his commandments. The third implication is this is that God's word, being connected to his character, then also helps us understand the seriousness and gravity of our sin. We can only begin to understand the true wickedness of sin when we understand that when we sin, we're not just hurting another individual in our lives. We're not simply disregarding an ancient instruction or advice that's given to us on these ancient pages that we have in front of us. We do not have the right or the authority to evaluate whether something is right and wrong dependent on the circumstances that are there. And we do that. We take God's word and we say, yeah, but this circumstance, I've got I've to do this. No. Sin, brothers and sisters, when we realize that the law of God is is, is a reflection of who God is, his very person, who he is as a person. It's connected and rooted in, in his very nature. Then, then hear me. When you and I sinned this week, it was an affront and a violent offense against a person who is good, perfect, holy, and gracious in all of his being. It is the God, our Lord. We sin against God. We're not just sinning against people or sinning against laws or things written on the wall or ideas. No, we're sinning against a person. We're personally offending our maker and creator. So sin doesn't become more grievous because the person you did wrong against is really, really mad. And so it must have really, really sinned. No, sin has its weight and its authority and his substance. The wickedness of sin is that we have been an affront, we have affronted the very God himself who spoke that law into existence. He cannot separate himself, the Lord can't, from the words that he's spoken, these commands that he's given to us. And so when the scriptures speak of sin, it uses words like wickedness, transgression, iniquity, wickedness, evil. We don't hear those words anymore, do we? In fact, what we hear is, I messed up. I slipped up. I shouldn't have been there. That was dirty. That was a white lie. Do you see how the very way we begin describing our offenses removes God and places us at the center? When we begin using the vocabulary of Scripture for how we sin then we're rightly understanding who we're sinning against. And the violation it truly is, we do not think of sin as we should, brothers and sisters. And the reason is because we do not see this connection between God's word and his nature. David understood this. David understood this. We know the story of Bathsheba. What person in that story did he not sin against? 
I mean, he, in, what, in what sin did he not commit? I mean, you can go through the list. I mean, he went right down the row and just checked off everything. He sinned in every kind of way. He, he killed the husband of Bathsheba. He, he, he offended, he lied, he went in every direction wrong. And then in his, his petition to the Lord in Psalm 51, he says, For I know my transgressions. All right, he's getting ready to declare how he has transgressed. And my sin is ever before me. And this is what he says. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's speaking to the Lord. Against the Lord only? Yes. The Lord was the one that he most offended that day. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. David realized he had sinned against God. And that was the weight of his sin. That was the gravity of the evil he had done. So, we see here this morning, brothers and sisters, that the law is universal. These attributes, these descriptions of who God is and these Ten Commandments are true of God for everyone in all creation. It's true of them. It's a universal law describing who God is regardless of who you are, regardless of when you, when you lived Throughout all of creation, this is who God is. These Ten Commandments are connected to who He is. But this morning, I want to turn now and notice not just verse 1, but also verse 2. God spoke all these words saying, and then He begins to speak. And Moses is telling God's people these words. He says this. This is what the Lord says in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. So not only do we see this objective truth that God is who he is, and he's describing himself in these Ten Commandments, but what's so amazing about verse 2 is that the Lord says he's not going to leave them there. In other words, God is who he is in these Ten Commandments for all the Egyptians that died in the Red Sea. But there's something different about verse 2 that distinguishes God's people here with the Egyptians. You know what it is? He says, I am the Lord, notice this, your God. The Lord says, not only is this who I am and all that there is, but he says, I brought you near. The Lord says, I have made a relationship with you. There's a unique privilege that God's people have, particularly with God's law. The Lord in his his gracious mercy has not only displayed who he is, but he said, I'm going to draw near to you and I'm going to be your God. You see, out of all those things that I said about God that was true about the Ten Commandments, and each one of those commandments I went through and described the characteristic of who God is, none of those were that he's a deliverer, that he's a liberator, that he's a savior. Is it? No. This is unique. Brothers and sisters, for all of those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they, they still have a God who's the God of the Ten Commandments. But all of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have this God who is the God of the Ten Commandments, the God who ascended on that mountain, a God who has described himself in all these perfect and righteous and holy and amazing ways. But you also, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have this God as one who has delivered you, who has, who has rescued you, who is your Savior. This is a vitally important point that's being made here. The Lord now in verse 2 is saying, I am the Lord and I am your God. 
I am the one who's going to be for you and with you. Now notice, this word for Lord, it's all capitals, and it's the word for Yahweh. And this word speaks of a God who is a covenant-keeping God. This word for Lord, almost universally, and it's a lot of times in our Old Testament, it speaks of, it, this word for Lord is not used, is not used by pagans. This word for Lord is not used, wasn't used by, by, by Pharaoh prior to Moses telling him, this is our Lord that we are serving. This is the one true God. This is the I am. This is the Lord who revealed himself on the mountain to his people, but also to, in the burning bush to Moses. And this is the one who has heard his people's cry and their slavery and decided to deliver them. Why? Because they were a better group of people? Because they sinned less? Because they looked better? Because they were a bigger group of people? No, out of his sheer mercy and grace, he saved them. This covenant-keeping God, this one who is spoken of as understood in, as, as Lord, often this word Lord in the Old Testament is associated with another Hebrew word called, and this is, if you only learn one Hebrew word, this is the one you need to learn. It's the word hesed. It's the word hesed. And it's translated in the ESV as steadfast love. It's translated in the King James as mercy. It's translated in the New American Standard as loving kindness. Do you see how all these translations are trying to get at it? Because it's so phenomenal. It's such an amazing word. It's hard to understand this this love that's fully devoted. This love that's so committed. This love that's steadfast, that will never waver. This love that will always be there no matter what his people do. God says, I have hesed you. I have loved you with an everlasting love, with a steadfast love. The, um, the Christian Standard Bible translation set, translates it faithful love. The NIV translates it loyal kindness. And the New Living Translation translates it a lavish, unfailing love. Do you see what's happening here? This is the love that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, shows to his people. When When he tells his people here in verse 2, I am the Lord, your God. He's saying, I have loved you and I'm going to prove my love to you by giving you these commandments and revealing myself to you and showing you my love. Those who call God Lord have been shown this steadfast love, this mercy, this loving kindness, this faithful, abiding, loyal kindness, this lavish, unfailing love. These are the people who can call the Lord the Lord. Because they have known this love. This is the love, brothers and sisters, that we know of when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. This is the love that the Lord has shown to us who have placed our faith in Christ. Why am I making this point? Why is it so important for us to see that not only is God displaying who he is by his, speaking his words in verse 1, but he's also drawing his people to him relationally. He's saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you that's going to be steadfast and enduring forever, and I'm going to love you no matter what. It's because you and I will, over the next several weeks as we go through these commandments, we will use these as beating sticks for ourselves. Well, I don't measure up there. I guess the Lord doesn't love me as much. I don't, live, I don't live up to that. In fact, as I was reading through these, you were probably looking at those and saying, man, that's the one 
that I need to be here for, right? Because we're so, so prone to see the law of God as a burden and a hardship. You see, the reason I wanted to bring this up is that the Lord, the Lord here is saying, I am the Lord your God, and I am loving you by giving you these commandments. I'm not placing arbitrary, difficult, hard burdens. The Lord's saying, the Lord didn't say, I'm like a new Pharaoh. He didn't say that. He wasn't bringing harsh oppression upon them. He was loving them and saying, this is a way that you can live your life in such a way as to reflect my glory and live to full and satisfaction and good. Brothers and sisters, we need to affirm and acknowledge again this morning as we approach these Ten Commandments that we too often see them as burdens that we can beat ourselves up with or even uh, lists that we need to make sure we check off in order to be in right standing with God. No, Psalm 19, as we've read already, says, The law of the Lord is perfect, it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We are to do them motivated by the love that God has given to us. In other words, when we understand the lavish, unfailing love of God for us, before he even mentions any of the commandments, he doesn't mention this at the back end. He doesn't say, here are all the commandments, and now know that I'm the Lord that's going to love you if you do all these. He doesn't do that. He mentions them at the beginning as a basis for saying, Know this first, I love you with a steadfast love. Here are my commandments as a proof, as a testimony of my love for you. Jesus said it this way as the teacher approached him and said, Which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great commandment and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's about loving the Lord. It's about loving one another. The sum of the commandments is love the Lord, who has loved us with this hesed, this steadfast, this loyal, this unfailing, this lavish love. We doubt that love. Because this is why. Because we are constantly placing God's love in the category of our love. We're saying God's love is just like our love, but just greater. And that is wrong. God's love is categorically different than our love. His love is different in kind in every way. We're broken and we're meager. Our love wavers. It comes and goes. It's so fickle, is it not? God's love is enduring. It's steadfast. It's loyal. It is so very loyal. So we see in our catechism it says what does the preface of the ten commandments teach us that's the question 50 answer 50 in our catechism says this the preface of the ten commandments teaches us that because god is lord and our gracious redeemer his commandments are for our good and he does not will for us to depend on ourselves to keep them but to trust his grace and his power hallelujah praise the lord Isn't that a wonderful, glorious thing to know? Now, not only is he the Lord our God, but it goes on and it says, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord delivered his people. He he rescued them. He not only said, I love you, and now you need to trust me. 
No, he's saying this having already demonstrated and displayed his love. In other words, he says, look, I've already brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Note this. This is chapter 20. In very, this is a very important point in our Bible. Here it is. This is chapter 20. <laughs> this is what I mean by that. This portion of the text didn't come at the beginning of Exodus. It wasn't chapter 1. In other words, this verse does not read, I will be the Lord your God if you do all of these commandments, then I will bring you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That's not what this verse says, does it? This verse isn't even in the right place to say that. (laughs) After God has already delivered his people, he's already shown them his steadfast love, he's already proved to them that he's cared for them, not just by bringing them through the Red Sea, but by showing him his grace over and over again. They needed water. They needed food. They needed needed to fight against the enemy that was coming against them. And the Lord lavishly provided for them over and over in the wilderness as they came to this mountain, Mount Sinai, all along the way. Brothers and sisters, you have that testimony. You have that testimony. The Lord has over and over again lavished His love upon you, shown you His kindness and His deliverance over and over again. And for some reason... And it's insane. Each and every one of us are not quite convinced he'll do it tomorrow. Isn't that true? The Lord says, I've loved you. I've loved you. And I want you to trust me in this. It says he's brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There wasn't a Hebrew there that didn't think about the word Egypt, the place Egypt, and did not think about the incredible wrath that God shown to those Egyptians. There was not a Hebrew that was listening to this on that day. They didn't think of Egypt and thought, that place is ruined. God showed his unrelenting wrath upon them because of their idolatry. And it is a ruined place. Could it be that when they heard this idea, we brought you out of the land of Egypt, one of the first images in their mind were the dead bodies washing up on shore that it talks about after that Red Sea had closed in upon them. You see, they understood that in order for them to be delivered, it wasn't just a walk in the park. It was Almighty God doing an amazing thing to bring His people out. He was delivering them from an incredible oppressor that they could have never faced on their own. In the same way, brothers and sisters, we've been delivered from an incredible oppressor that we can never face on our own. God saved us from a holy, righteous, invisible, good, jealous God that we deserved all the wrath and penalty from. And yet, what did He do? He showed us grace and mercy. So not only did Egypt, coming out of the land of Egypt, speak of the wrath that was displayed upon them because of their sin, but it says, out of the house of slavery, speaking of the amazing oppression, harshness, and inescapable slavery that they all knew very well that the Lord had brought them out. Why? Why did the Egyptians get what they got and the Hebrews get what they got? Why? Because God was gracious and gloriously delivered His people. Because He loved them. There's nothing on their part that they did. This passage is not, get your life right and do these ten things and then God will love you more. Hear me. This passage says, I am the Lord your God. 
I have brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Here are my commands to obey with joy, motivated by love. So as we go through each one of these passages, brothers and sisters, we're going to look at each of these commandments and we're going to look at not only what they require of us and how they undo us. It says in Hebrews that the word of God is, it, it lays us bare. We're going to see how each one of these commandments lay us open and, sh- and reveal the sinfulness of our hearts. But then as we work through each and every one of these commands, you know what we're going to see? That Christ is sufficient to fulfill it for us. And that because Christ fully and absolutely lived out each one of these commands perfectly and righteously, He gives us that righteousness, not so that we can go and do whatever we want, but out of an amazing love that says, He is Jesus, is the Lord our God. He has brought us out of the land of our sin and out of the slavery of our, of our, of our sinfulness and transgression. We can now live these commandments in love and joy and obedience. You and I both have declared, as Paul did in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You've been there. I've been there. Can't get on my feet, and when I do, it's not long before I'm knocked down again. Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, brothers and sisters, your flesh and my flesh, they serve a law of sin. Next verse in Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, this law is not to condemn us. It's to show us the amazing thing that God did to deliver us. And then free us to live in ways that are honoring and glorifying to Him. That we may, this is absolutely amazing. You and I, even in our brokenness, we are able to display to the world attributes of who God is. We're able to show others who our God is through obedience to these commands with joy and with great hope. For the law of the Spirit of life was set, has, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, where? In us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The Lord, brothers and sisters, through Jesus Christ, by placing our faith in Him, He gives us His Spirit that we might live these laws out, not as a burden or as a stick to beat ourselves up with, but instead as an opportunity to reflect God's glory. May the Lord do this for us and through us as we work through these Ten Commandments. Let us pray.